Gradebook, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and this week our guest is Doug Tuthill, president of Step Up for Students, the organization that oversees many, if not all, of the state's tax credit scholarships and will be taking care of the new Empowerment Scholarship Voucher Program that the legislature recently put in place. Tuthill is interesting because he used to be a very active member of the Florida Education Association while teaching in Pinellas County, and then he became very active in the voucher movement. And he considers himself to be very left of center when it comes to politics, but he's often vilified by people from that same political persuasion who think that vouchers have no place in education in the state of Florida. So let's just take a listen to our conversation with him. He's got some interesting perspectives on what's going on with the state of of school choice in Florida and why he supports it and where he sees it headed next. Well, Doug Tuthill, thank you so much for sitting and talking with me on our latest podcast. My pleasure, Jeff. I have been just amazed by the growth of Step Up for Students and the growth of the scholarship slash voucher program over the past several years. So, I mean, can you just give us a little sense of where things came from and where they are right now? Well, I was telling you earlier that when I started working, um, actually before Step Up, there was a, a previous nonprofit. It wasn't called Step Up. I think we had eight or 9,000 kids on scholarship in 2008 in our little nonprofit. And this year, Step Up will serve about 150,000 kids. We'll distribute about a billion dollars in scholarship monies across uh, five different programs. So there's been uh, pretty dramatic growth. Now, I, I actually started uh, with the magnet schools in, in Florida. And so, you know, that's been really dramatic growth, too. So I think across the board, education choice has grown pretty dramatically. I think, you know, the stats, like 70% of kids in, in Dade County are attaining the school other than their neighborhood school. So I just think it's, it's, it's cultural, you know, around our entire culture. There's people who are expecting to have a lot more choices. Um, and this is being caught up in that whole cultural transformation of, of, of choice and customization across the culture, but also in, in education. But it's so controversial somehow. I, I was just looking at Twitter right before I came over here, and some people from your office and some people from a couple of school boards are having a spat back and forth about whether vouchers are subsidizing unaccountable horror, horror factories right. versus some other form of education. And... I mean, why do you think that this has become so, so much of a flashpoint? Well, of course, education historically has been controversial. Um, you can go back into the to the mid eighteen hundreds in the battles between Protestants and Catholics, and a lot of the, the public education system was born out of that out of that struggle. Um, you know, uh, Protestants were deeply offended by Catholicism and, and were trying to destroy Catholicism, and so. In every country, including ours, uh, public education has been a huge uh, political issue. You know, when I was when I was growing up as a young teacher, uh, we always sort of knew that every education decision was a political decision. So um, I, I just think it's um, it's the nature of, of, of education to be um, 
very controversial and people feel passionate about it. Um, my, my position is interesting because, as you know, I was a longtime teacher union leader in, in Florida. I'm, I'm fairly left of center politically. Um, and so, you know, I've been on all sides of the tribes. And um, so I see the issues very differently than other people, but I understand the passions on the various sides. And I think that those passions and, and sort of the, the tribalism that's inherent in all of our politics is why things are so controversial. Well, let's talk about that accountability piece, because I've heard some people say that they don't feel like the schools that receive the scholarships or that will receive vouchers are held accountable in the same way as the school districts, public schools are. And I'm wondering, is there a way around that? Are they even correct in, in stating that? Well, we, we use the word accountability, I think, um, incorrectly. There's really two types of accountability. There's regulatory accountability and there's consumer choice. So at the Tampa Bay Times, you're held accountable by both. You're a business and you're regulated and you have to follow those regulations. And you're held accountable based on those regulations, but you're also held accountable by your readership. And if your readership isn't happy with the services you're getting from the Times, they, they'll go someplace else. And so historically in district schools, we had very little choice. So you had a lot of regulatory accountability and very little uh, consumer choice. As you move into an environment where there's way more consumer choice, consumer choice assumes a greater role in that accountability and regulatory accountability becomes less. I'll give you another example. When I was a kid growing up, we had only one phone service. You had to use that phone service and it was there was no choice and it was heavily regulated. They controlled how much you know the, the local cost of, of a phone call was. Long distance were all standardized. You couldn't even own your own phone. If a phone was broken, they had to come in and fix it. You weren't allowed to own your own phones. So it was highly regulated, a lot of regulatory accountability, but very little choice. Today, there's way more choices in your phones, and as a consequence, it's, there's way less regulation. So that's normal in every industry, that every industry tries to balance regulation and consumer choice. My preference would be, um, I think you know, I have a 35-year history in Florida of talking about overregulation. So I think the district schools are, are way overregulated. Um, I would prefer a balance similar to what we have in a lot of our schools. Mm -hmm. um, more choice and less regulation, more empowerment for teachers, more empowerment for parents. Um, so I, I just think that that's a normal process. And I hope over time we have more choices for families and less regulation in the district schools. But we're looking at a set of standards. Even right now, the governor is talking about changing the educational standards for the state of Florida. And yet the testing that is associated with making sure those standards are met is not placed on some of the schools that receive these these scholarships and vouchers. And so I'm just wondering, I mean, are we talking about two separate, completely separate things? Because it seems like if you have standards that you want to be upheld, you would want to have also the accountability for everybody be the same way, just to ensure that the standards are being met. Well, again, I, I think um, as we have more choices within the district schools, I'm hoping that you have far less regulation. For example, I think the, the testing requirements we have in the program would be really appropriate for the district schools. You know, um, kids have to be tested, but they have a variety of choices that they can they can use. We have about 400 schools this year using something called the Measures of Academic Progress, which is basically an, a standardized assessment system online, but allows you to get um, uh, data throughout the year to inform teaching and learning. I think that's a far superior assessment, for example, than what, what's being used right now in the district schools. The, the kids in, in the private schools have the ability to use the district and state assessment system if they want, but most of them choose to use things like the MAP assessment. Uh, so from my perspective, I think that we need to have an accountability system in terms of regulation and choice 
that's much closer to what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. I wrote a blog piece, I don't know if you read it, about a year ago where I talked about a deal we had with the FEA, the State Teachers Union, several years ago, where we agreed to do a pilot because I think they have a lot of the same thoughts that, um, you know, I was a long part, time part of the organization. We used to have these discussions all the time. We talked about a deal where um, a lot of district schools would have less regulatory control in exchange for more uh, parental choice inside their programs because there's a lot of full choice schools already in the districts. So um, we tried to get that through the legislature. Um, it never never got going. But I think ultimately you're going to see a merger of what we're talking about. You're going to see these various accountability systems come together and find that proper balance between regulation and consumer choice. I just sort of think about it in terms of if I were going to choose a school and I can choose between a magnet school, a charter school, just an open enrollment program, a voucher program, and all that, that I'd want to know at some level that I'm getting at least some sort of quality education and that I'm not just picking the school because I think it might be good. And a lot of times we're seeing people who like, I know people who say like, oh, that charter school must be good because it's private, so to speak. And I know other people who say, I want the voucher because they teach religion. And we don't know necessarily. And saying, oh, well, parents know best because they make that choice. I I met a parent one time who said, I took my kid to this program and now she has a diploma that's worthless. So I guess I kind of wonder about that consumer choice aspect as being as valuable as some sort of of ability to know that there's a quality program there. Well, I, I think that's a huge challenge for all of us. Um, as we have more and more choices throughout our society, but certainly in public education, we have to give parents better and better information to make better choices. And so it doesn't make any sense to give people more choices, but don't give them the support systems they need to make good choices. I experienced this a lot, you know, it, when I was teaching in, in a district magnet school. I was one of the, helped found the IB program at St. B. High. Okay. And it was tragic how many parents would put their kids in the program, and it really was a terrible fit. And we dealt with all the emotional uh, trauma of a child failing in that program. And we would you know, talk to the parents about making better choices. So across the board, um, I think that's a huge problem, that too often uh, you know, we don't give parents all the information they need to make a really good choice. The other thing that's interesting is a school that works really well for one child may not work really well for another. Again, we used to see it a lot in the IB program at St. Pete High, where I used to teach. The program was great for some children. For other children, it was a it was a disaster. And it was heartbreaking to see children in that situation when the program was a disaster. And uh, so, again, I think it's all about customization. It's all about matching the child with the program that best meets their needs. And as we move into a much more robust choice environment, we've got to do a better job of giving parents um, across the board uh, better information to help them make better choices. And it has to be on, on a continuous basis. I mean, St. Pete High IB program might be good for somebody in ninth grade, but maybe in 10th grade, there's a, a program at another school that's, that's a better choice. So we ought to be continuously giving parents and kids feedback about how to find the right choices at any particular time. Now, the new voucher program is about to take hold. Right. And you guys... The, uh, the Family Empowerment Scholarship. Right. And you guys are basically overseeing all of it, most of it? Yeah, we... Um, uh, we are uh, qualifying kids for that program. It's a very complex process. We have to qualify them financially because it's means tested. We then turn the names over to DOE, and they do another qualification process that they're, that they're engaged in. And once the kids are qualified by us and qualified for DOE, then they're not eligible to, uh, to take that scholarship to any one of the approved schools that's participating in Florida. So is it only for students who are on some sort of set wait list at the end of last year, because we kept hearing so much about a waitlist, and right. I never saw a waitlist, but I was assured there was one. Yeah. 
Well, um, you know, I just looked at the numbers. Um, this year, um, we've already approved 12,000 more new students than we approved last year. Um, as of today, we have 171,000 kids who, who have applied uh, for scholarships in our, in our system. Um, and it's still June. So mm-hmm. I suspect we're going to be pushing over 200,000 kids by the time you know, school starts in the fall. The tax credit program this year will probably serve about 110,000 kids. The new uh, FES program will serve about 18,000 kids by law. That's the cap. So you'll probably end up with about 130,000 kids out of that 200,000 plus kids that are looking for scholarships. So um, the problem is that at the moment, there's just way more demand than there is supply. And that's what the legislature has responded to. Um, We still have a long way to go. To, to make sure that every family that wants a scholarship is able to get a scholarship. But we're pecking away. You know, it's, it's one step at a time. So like I said, we'll have about 130,000 kids. And, and the wait list is really a function of how many kids we decide to, to process. In the past, we tried to keep the wait list low because it didn't seem to make sense to spend money to qualify kids and give them hope when there's no hope. Mm-hmm. And so this last year, I think we stopped at like 13,000 qualified kids and said no more. Um, we'll probably do something similar this year, maybe thirteen to 15,000. I think it's unethical, frankly, to tell families that you have a chance. And if you're on an approved wait list, it implies you have a chance. So I always struggle with the, the ethics of that. Um, but anyway, the bottom line is we just have way more demand than we have supply. So who gets the money, though? I mean, for this year, then? It's, you, for, it's by law. It's first come, first serve. First come, first serve. So somebody who was on a waiting list last year might not be the same person who's on a waiting list this year? That's correct. So, so they may still think that, hey, I was on the waiting list and. Well, you have to reapply every year uh, right now. And so, um, so if you're on a waiting list last year, you still have to reapply. And it, frankly, if you wait too long, <laughs> tragically for that family and that child, you could be on the wait list again if you wait. So it's, we encourage those families to apply as soon as possible. Um, every year we open up in October. Um, and usually if you apply by um, May or so, you're usually okay. But if you wait until like June or July or August, you usually end up not being qualified. This year, because of the new 18,000 kids on the, on the Family Empowerment Scholarship, we're hoping to serve more. But like I said, as of today, we already have 170-some thousand kids who have started applications. So um, we'll probably end up with a fairly robust wait list again. And these are wait lists of kids that have applied and we've evaluated their applications and approved them. Mm-hmm. So what about the corporate tax scholarship donations? Are they just, I was confused, are they down? Are they just not growing fast enough? What's going on there? They're just not growing fast enough. There are 18 states that have tax credit programs. Step Up for Students raises 55% of all the money in the country. So um, in the entire country, we raise 55% of the money. And so um, there's a certain point where just diminishing returns, you know, Um, and so we'll probably raise about $700 million this year, which will be somewhere between 55 and 60% of all the money raised nationally. But again, the demand is just overwhelming. And it's just families who are fighting for their kids. I know it gets very political and people get emotional and blah, 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 blah. But from my perspective and my job, Jeff, is I just talk to families. You know, families stop me in the grocery store and they stop me walking down the street. And for them, it's not political. It's not ideological. It's simply... My kid is struggling and I want a different situation. And sometimes I'll put them in our program for a year and then clean up whatever issues they're dealing with their child and then move them back to another, to another school, whether it's a magnet school or a neighborhood school, whatever. As you know, we, we're not a private school choice advocate organization. 
Um, by the way, all of our programs have a public school attendance uh, piece in it. Um, so you can be on a tax credit scholarship and use that for a, 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 as a public school transportation. Mm-hmm. The new Family Empowerment Scholarship has a has a transportation scholarship for public kids. In one of our programs, the Reading Scholarship is only for kids in district schools. So we serve a lot of kids in district schools as well as private schools, all kinds of different schools. We don't care. The Gardner program, as you know, is in the educational savings account. So they have occupational therapy, physical therapy. They're all over the place. Our perspective is that we want to make sure that every child, regardless of their status economically or their or their unique abilities, has the ability to find a, a learning environment that best meets their needs. That's just our passion. Well, when I grew up, private school was what you paid for, and if you couldn't afford it, that's what the public schools were there for. And and now, even when you first started, you at least had some sort of you know financial qualifications that seem to have grown to the point where some people say, oh, you can get $70,000 a year for a family of four and you can qualify for one of these scholarships or vouchers. And it just seems like, you know, at some point we're totally radically, some people say, taking away from the public school system in order to do that, even as the public school system is creating more choices. How do you deal with that kind of strong pushback and try and Explain it. Well, you know, we first started the first magnet programs. We had exactly the same discussions. I mean, we started the IB program at, at St. Pete High. It was very controversial. It was very controversial for several years. Basically, um, the, the, the argument was you're destroying all the other, all the other high schools. You're taking all the best kids from all the other high schools. You're taking all the resources and you're going to destroy, you know, Bogusiega High School and, and, and all these other high schools in, in, in St. Petersburg. That didn't happen. Um, and so I don't think that giving families more choices necessarily hurts anybody. There's no, there's no, no evidence of that. I do think we have equity issues, you know, and I do think that choice is, that's my main, that's my main concern, one of my main concerns. I mean, I saw it at, at, again in the IB program at St. Pete High. Um, that program serves fairly politically powerful families, frankly, and it gets special funding, it gets all kinds of special support. And so, you know, I saw the difference between what the kids in the regular program at St. Pete High were getting and what the kids in the IB program were getting. And I think that's one of the downsides of choice. We need to make sure that um, even kids who don't have a lot of political power, that don't have a lot of influence, that their needs get met also. And so one of the ways that we give power to poor people is give them control of their money. Uh, you know, and so that's part of what's going on here is we're giving power to people that historically haven't had it. And our theory is that um, everybody ultimately will win. Now, a lot, a lot of people think, no, it's, it's a loss. That, that if you give, if you give the same kind of, uh, choices to poor people as you give to more affluent people, it's going to hurt, um, the overall system. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's a win-win solution where everybody gets empowered. Everybody has the ability to have a learning option that best meets their needs. I think we can find a win-win that, that brings all the various races and classes together so we don't have this conflict, which, as you know, is, highly tainted by race and class. I mean, there's very, there's huge, if you look at the polling data, there's huge differences based on race and class in terms of how people see these issues. But when you take it and you expand the the eligibility so that almost, you know, somebody in my category could almost qualify for it, I mean, that doesn't seem fair to the poor people that you're talking about who originally were targeted. And I mean, I know that was the same issue that came up with the VPK, the pre-kindergarten program, because it started off being one thing and they realized that if they did it for just one group of people, they wouldn't get the support they needed from the broader 
population, and so they made it for everyone. As you know, that the, the both the scholarship programs, the task credits program, <coughs> excuse me, and the new um, FES program, they're both means tested, and they both prioritize the highest poverty kids. And so um, we're a long way from getting into sort of the lower middle class or, 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 or middle class. Um, but you know, if you're a police officer and you're married to a school teacher and you've got three kids and you want to you want to educate them in a particular school and they're struggling. Um, I think we ought to try to make sure that those families have the same kind of opportunities. I mean, a billionaire's kid gets a free education at a very exclusive IB program, and um, but a but a cop and a teacher who want to put their kid in a local Catholic school because they're Catholic, you know, we say tough luck. And so, if you're really convinced about equity and you really believe in equal opportunity, you know, I want the the cop and the teacher to have the same opportunities as as the billionaire. I just think that ultimately. We all win if everybody has an equal opportunity to be successful. And we're a long way from there. And right now we have choice for some people and not others. And so our, our philosophy is that everybody deserves the right to match their child with the school that best meets their needs. What about the people who say that it would be better to take taxpayer dollars and put them into taxpayer-funded schools and make them better however you can, as opposed to just splitting it off and creating basically another form of education system that sort of splinters the money and makes it harder for anybody to do something really well. Well, of course, that, I think that's just a false, a, a false analogy. Okay. Um, again, um, we have a mandatory school attendance law in Florida. You can satisfy that mandatory attendance law by going to a neighborhood school or a magnet school or a virtual school or dual enrollment um, or, or a private school. So all of those possibilities are available to you to meet the mandatory school attendance laws in Florida. If you're wealthy or you're politically influential, you have all kinds of choices that, that poor people don't have. And so if you want to outlaw wealthy people having these choices, then I'm, I'm open-minded. But as long as politically powerful people and wealthy people have these choices, I want low-income families and low-income kids that have the same opportunities. So I just think it's, 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 I'm not saying you saying this, but I think it's hypocritical when people say, look, you know, I have the money to, to do these things for my kids, but I don't want less affluent people to have the same opportunities. I just think it's it's hypocritical and it's wrong and it's and it's um, not the way our democracy is supposed to work. I think our democracy is about equal opportunity and equity. And all we're doing is making sure that everybody has the same uh, kinds of opportunities. I also, I also, you know, believe that teachers ought to have the same kind of professional um, support as as doctors and lawyers and accountants. If you're an accountant, you can create your own accounting office and, and go into business and, and serve the customers. A lawyer can do the same thing. A doctor can have a doctor's office, but a teacher can't have a teacher's office. I can't create my own little thing. You know, I have to work in this large sort of factory. Well, isn't that a charter school now? Well, yeah, but people attack that. If you empower teachers to create their own school, somehow that's negative. That's hurting. But I think that's wrong. I don't know why teachers can't have the same kind of opportunities that other folks can, even journalists now are creating their own, you know, uh, podcasts and blogs and making a living all kinds of different ways. You don't have to work for a large daily newspaper now to be a successful journalist. So I just think teachers ought to have the same opportunities. And part of what we do by giving choice to families, particularly low-income families, is you're also giving more choices to teachers, which as a longtime teacher union advocate, I'm a big supporter of. Uh, I'll end with one last question. We know that this program or these programs are growing. Yes, sir. And your organization is generally on the forefront of where things are headed. So give us a prediction of where things are headed in the next year or two with all these choice, voucher, scholarship, 
et cetera, programs. The future of public education is education savings accounts. And what an educational savings account does is it gives a family the opportunity to spend money, just not on schools, but also on other kinds of activities that are educationally important. That's particularly important for those of us who believe in equity. Um, you can't expect the school uh, six hours a day, 180 days a year, to deal with all the issues related to generational poverty and inequities that are part of that. If I have a look at your life and my life, Jeff, a lot of the things that made us who we are today happened outside of school. For me, it was you know a lot of athletics, and, and I had all kinds of opportunities after school and during the summer. My own two children had all these amazing opportunities after school and during the summer. Low-income kids don't have those opportunities. So we ought to make sure we think about education and public education. It's just not schools. It's not fair to tell a teacher in a, in a school that you're responsible for overcoming all the, all the negative effects of poverty. As a society, we have to understand that development happens in all kinds of different ways, and we need to make sure that these children have access to a variety of learning opportunities beyond school, the way that middle-class and upper-middle-class families do. And what educational savings accounts do is give families the money and the resources to be able to make choices and to access things that more affluent families currently have. That's the end of our interview and the end of our podcast. If you'd like to participate in the conversation, please put your comments underneath the post for this podcast on our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. To keep up with the latest in Florida education breaking news, go to our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. And please continue to send your ideas for this podcast. We like to hear what you want to hear about, what you think about what you've already heard. You can review us on any of the podcast services. We are on Apple and Google and I think a growing number as well. So please look for it, share it, and let us know what you think. Just as a little programming note, I'm going to be taking a few weeks off for the summer. So this is our last podcast for the next couple of weeks. When we get back, we'll start up fresh and hopefully have some great new ideas as we get closer to the start of a new school year. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. Thanks again for listening. 